Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I hope your heart is full today. We're going to be talking today about the love of Jesus, which is in every passage of Scripture as we continue our series with Jeff Redorn. Uh, We're going to uh, get back on our series. We're down to the last couple episodes of Who is This Jesus? And today we're going to talk about the future. What does Jesus have in the future? And promise, it's all about love. And there's going to be some events going on, and we're going to discuss them uh, today with Jeff. Jeff, welcome. Hi, Bill. Is that accurate to say that what's ahead is love? Well, God is love. And God is the beginning, God is the end, and everything that he does for us is motivated by his love. So, mm-hmm. yes. And the future events are all about love. They are. In fact, when we look at our future, and, and I don't think Christians fully grasp the future that God has in store for us. And that's why when we finish up this series of who is this Jesus, we are going to talk about what Jesus does in the future for us. So Mm -hmm. we've covered everything in the past, that Jesus is God incarnate, that he created all things by him and for him and through him, all things were made that were made. We see Jesus in the Old Testament. We saw the Christophanies and the Theophanies and, and the prophecies for the coming of Jesus for his first coming. And we talked about his incarnation, his life, his ministry, his teachings, his parables, and of course his death, what happened on the cross and his resurrection. Um, now we're going to look at the future things related to Jesus. I like. So one of the things that Paul describes the future event that uh, is the next event, actually, on God's prophetic calendar, is he describes it this way in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. He says, we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So this blessed hope, is what is referred to in Scripture as the rapture, the rapture of the church, or the great catching up of the church. And so today, I want to focus on this next event, this time when Jesus will call those who are alive and remain up to him, and it's also the day that all of the body of Christ, whether you're dead in Christ and in heaven right now, or whether you are alive and remain, you will receive what is referred to in Scripture as your glorified body. So Rapture Day is really Resurrection Day, and so that's what we're going to focus on today. Mm -hmm. And Jeff, fair to say that there are a number of people listening today that are going to have an opposition to your perspective on this, and we're okay with people having different opinions, of course, different understandings and interpretations of Scripture. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interpretations about many things in Scripture, the end times being one of the big categories in which there is a wide variety of opinions. So one of the things I advise my classes is don't study your doctrine by searching the Internet, <laughs> right? If you Google the rapture, if you Google eschatology, which is the theological word for the study of end things— you will get a thousand different opinions. In fact, there's seven billion people, or maybe there's eight billion people in the world. 
And there's 8 billion opinions in this world. And I, I don't know about you, but I don't really care about any of the 8 billion opinions. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. I want to know the one opinion, and that's God's opinion. And so where do we get – where do we go – to study the end times, and that is the Word of God. So we want to turn to the Word and look to see what He says and understand it properly. So yes, within the church, many in the church don't believe there's this thing called the rapture or this time when we are going to be caught up together with Him in the clouds. They just uh, believe generally that there's one coming, a second coming of Jesus, and that's all there is to it. Even if you do believe in the rapture and you do believe that the rapture is separate from the second coming of Jesus, there is debate over the timing of the rapture. Generally speaking, does the rapture happen before a future seven-year tribulation, in the middle of a future seven-year tribulation, or at the end of a future seven-year tribulation? Those are the main views. That's called pre-tribulational, mid-tribulational, and post-tribulational. Um, so even those who believe in the rapture from Scripture or interpret Scripture that way, uh, there are different opinions as far as, as, far as its timing. Um, I am a strong proponent of a pre-trib view of Scripture. I think there are many different reasons why. We're going to look at one of them today in a very interesting um, story from Scripture where we are called the bride, Jesus is the groom, and so we're going to look at a specific passage of Scripture from the book of John today um, describing how the first century Jewish person would have understood this and how it relates to the rapture of the church. Mm-hmm. All right? So one of the things I do want to point out that, as you brought up, there, when I first started really teaching the end times some over 20 years ago now, there was a lot of interest. A lot of churches were teaching on the end times. Churches were doing series on the end times. Pastors in the pulpit were teaching upon it, on it. And I think there's a couple reasons why there was a, a fictitious uh, novel series that came out by Tim LaHaye called Left Behind. I think it was actually six or seven or eight books in total. Sold millions of copies, and it was a. a a story about the time of the rapture. The rapture comes, leaves a set of people behind, and it's the story of them going through the tribulation period. And it was very popular. And for the most part, Tim LaHaye's view of the end times and my views are very similar. And so I I agreed with many of the theological assumptions of the novel. And people got interested in studying what does the Bible actually say about these things. But now we wake up 20 years later and I find it really fascinating because a lot of churches just are not even touching the subject of the end times. Um, and I think there's a couple reasons why. I think it's it's hard. It's complicated. It's controversial. There are many different opinions about it. And I think senior pastors don't like receiving a whole bunch of emails from people <laughs> who disagree with them on mm-hmm. eschatology things. So let's just stay away from it maybe. And in fact, when I taught this uh, series last year, uh, or actually a couple years ago, um, I got in the mail a, a periodical, I get a Christian periodical, and the cover story was, Why the Rapture Doctrine is Being Left Behind. And the first opening sentence basically said, Whatever happened to the once popular theology? Why do so many evangelical Christians reject it today? And that's because they're not studying it. Mm-hmm. Good and, point. And so today, we are going to look at what the Bible says about this event called the rapture. 
We are going to compare it to the second coming and see if they're the same events or different events. Mm-hmm. And then we'll talk a little bit about the, the symbolism Jesus used in this bride and groom symbolism that he uses. Mm-hmm. Who is this Jesus? That is our series word with uh, Jeff Fredorn. So if you uh, have missed any of this, uh, today we're going to talk about the rapture. So um, get ready, get your Bibles open, and always grab a pen and a notebook because I think there's uh, a lot of value in writing stuff down. So I think the church today is looking at the state of this world and saying, oh my goodness, the end must be near. Look at the state of this world. And I want to remind the church of a couple of things. One, if you look back at World War II, if you were living during that time, you had a a world at war, nation against nation, you know, wars and rumors of wars. You had six million Jews killed in the Holocaust. And if you were living at the time and you were a Christian, you understood some prophecy, you might think this is the end. Mm -hmm. Now, the Thessalonians were living through some persecution, and they actually thought they were living through the end. And Paul in 2 Thessalonians has to tell them, don't worry, Thessalonians, you didn't miss the rapture. Hmm. You're not in the end times. Mm -hmm. The end times is a period that's going to come that's uh, the Antichrist and all this stuff that's going to come. And so they thought they missed it. I think one of the reasons why end time studies is so hard is that God made it that way. I think he wants every generation of Christians, since he left from the Mount of Olives and went up to heaven, to think that we are the generation in which he's going to come back. Mm. Fascinating idea. It is. It and, is. And that's how I think he wants us to live. That's why Paul describes it as our blessed hope. Mm-hmm. I mean, who doesn't hope for the day that Jesus is going to come and take us to paradise? Oh, fantastic, yeah. So I think that's why. Remember, first century Christians never said, what is this world coming to? They proclaimed who has come to this world, mm-hmm. and that is Jesus. And they, 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 they preached salvation in his name. So I get that the world is a mess. I see it. I get it. But instead of lamenting the state of this world, remember Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. The world has always been a mess. Let's look to heaven. Let's look to our Redeemer. Let's let's look to heaven because that is where he's going to return from. And that is the great hope. So here's the passage in John I want to focus on. John 14, verses 2 and 3, Jesus says this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, and there also may be where I am, John 14. So there's this image that Jesus is going to go someplace. Clearly, he's going to ascend up to heaven after his resurrection, and he's going to come back, and he's going to take us to be with him where he is also. So right away, I want to point out who is where and which direction are we going. Jesus is in heaven. We are on earth. He is going to come and take us to be with him also in heaven. Um, So this idea, how the first century Jew would have understood this, this would have sounded an awful lot like their Galilean first century wedding traditions of the bride 
and the groom and the marriage process in the first century. And so that's what we're going to look at. And remember, we are the bride of Christ. The imagery in Scripture is that Jesus is the bridegroom. We are the bride. Revelation 19 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's us. That's the church. So we are definitely described in Scripture as the bride of Christ. Now, as long as we're in Revelation, I want to point out Revelation 19, because famously in Revelation 19 is this description of the second coming of Christ. And this is a very powerful image of Jesus riding on a white horse, and it says the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. That's us, the armies of heaven, following Jesus, dressed in fine linen, the white and clean. This is the same imagery from the previous chapter where we are described as the bride who has made herself ready, dressed in fine linens, uh, all white and clean. But notice where we are and which way we're going. We are in heaven all prepared and ready and clean and in white and so on, and we're coming with Jesus from heaven down to earth. So on one hand, we see the church, the bride being caught up to heaven to be where he is, and on another hand, we see us coming down from heaven, following him to earth, each riding on their own white horse. Well, which one is it at the second coming? Do we go up and meet him or do we come down? And the answer is both. We do both. These are two separate events. One, Scripture calls the rapture, and we'll talk about that term. And the other, when we come down with him, is called the second coming or generally called the second coming. And we come down by the way, right after we come down to earth and Jesus treads the winepress of the wrath of God, this battle of Armageddon, which is described in the book of Revelation, do you know what the first thing that we do when we get on earth is we have a marriage feast. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb, and this is it from Revelation 19. Then the angel said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So what do the bride and the groom do once they come back down to earth, they have a giant feast. Isaiah describes it this way, the finest meats and the choicest wines. No, it's the choicest meats and the finest wines, I think, (laughs) is the actual verse. But what do we do? We eat. Isn't that great news that in eternity in our glorified bodies, we will still be able to eat? I think that's a... Does it also say the best mint chocolate ice cream? Because I'm just asking. It's, I think... Somebody wants to know. It might be pie... Okay, okay. With ice cream. Okay, oh, good. good. Right, I just had go. to ask. I had to ask. <laughs> All right, this is a fantastic uh, beginning, Jeff. I want to go back and I want you to explain this this marriage uh, tradition and how the listening audience would have understood what Jesus was saying. It's fascinating. Jeff Redorn is my guest. We're continuing our series on Who is This Jesus? And we're only about uh, one more to go after this. And then we're going to conclude our series. So we'll be right back.
Listen to Faith Radio Live or on demand no matter where you go. Download the free Faith Radio app in your app store today. The way they keep on telling me time and time again, boy, you never win. You never win. But the voice of truth tells me a different story. The voice of Blessings on your day and thank you for spending part of it or all of it with me and uh, today, Jeff Redorn is my guest in studio. We're continuing our study on who is this Jesus, and we're talking about future events and about the rapture, and certainly I know that there's a lot of different opinions on the timing of it, so we're being super respectful of that. Jeff is offering what he understands uh, the biblical perspective to be, and he's offering his perspective, which I so appreciate. All right, Jeff. So... Right before the break, we were talking about the distinctions between the rapture where we're going up to him. I will take you back and take you to be with me also, John 14, 3. And the second coming of Christ in which the armies of heaven were following him, dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming back down to earth, Revelation 19, 14. So we have this picture of us going up to heaven in on one hand and us coming down from heaven with him. On the other hand, so the rapture is when Jesus comes for his own. The second coming is when Christ comes with his own. At the rapture, we meet him in the air. At the second coming, we come down to earth. At the rapture, Scripture says that the tribulation or this time of Jacob's trouble, as it's called in the Old Testament, that period begins. And the second coming, the tribulation ends and the millennial reign begins. Jesus comes to earth to establish his kingdom for a thousand years. After the rapture, there's no wine press, there's no judgment, there's no Armageddon. At the second coming, Jesus treads the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God. At the rapture, the Antichrist is revealed. At the second coming, the Antichrist is actually captured and thrown into the lake of fire. There's no mention of Israel at the rapture of the church, but at the second coming, Scripture says that Israel, the nation of Israel, is saved. At the rapture, he comes as a thief in the night, and only we, the church, will participate in the rapture. But at the second coming, it says everyone will see him. Just as lightning from the east is visible from the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. The whole world is not going to miss that event. And for the rapture, I believe there are no prophecies no signs to tell us when the rapture is going to happen. But for the second coming, we have an entire chapter of Matthew 24 that tells the world what to look for before his second coming. Wars, rumors of wars, deceivers, famine and earthquakes in various places, uh, Israel, the abomination set up in the temple of God in, in Matthew 24, Israel fleeing from Israel, These, he says, are all signs for his second coming. So his second coming actually has many signs that occur during the seven-year period leading up to the second coming. The rapture has no signs. It could happen today, tomorrow, next week, at any time, at any moment. And at the end of the hour, we'll talk about exactly how God described that, by the way. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So there's many differences between this event called the rapture and this event called the second coming. And um, and I think they are separated by this seven-year tribulation period. 
So I think that is the conclusion we can we can glean from Scripture. But now I want to turn to the first century Jewish tradition and see how the Jew would have understood this this phrase from John 14 that we read earlier, I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be where I am also. So here's the first century Jewish wedding tradition. Step number one, the father would choose a bride for his son. Oh, Scripture says in 1 Peter 2 that we, the bride of Christ, the church, are a chosen people. We are chosen by God. Now, just so we don't get into a big theological debate about what chosen means, I don't think it means that God selects some for salvation and others not for salvation, as some in Christianity believe. I don't think that's what that means here, and I think this will come clear in just a second. Step number two is the offer. The marriage contract with a dowry would be presented to the father of the bride and to the bride. God offers salvation to everyone, to whosoever. He is making an offer to the world to believe in him and to become part of his bride. But step three is very important because a lot of people think that this is an arranged marriage kind of situation. And while the father of the groom did select the bride, the bride could say yes or no. There was consent on the part of the bride. While the bride was chosen, the bride still had a choice. She could say yes, but she still could say no. John 1.12 says this about the church, our, the, the bride of the church. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. So we, to become the bride, have to receive him. We have to say yes. We have to put our faith in him. That is what faith is all about. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and they with me. So that opening the door is the bride saying, yes, I will consent to this relationship. So never forget, while the father chooses, the bride still has to consent to this marriage. And that was step three. Step four was called the mohar, the price that was paid to the bride. It was called a dowry today in, in, in kind of modern arranged type marriages. And this offering, this gift, this price was paid. And, and 1 Corinthians 7.23 says that we, as the bride of Christ, were bought with a price. And Peter describes what that price was, the precious blood of Christ, 1 Peter 1.18 and 19 says. So the price has been paid, the mohar has been paid, and uh, just like the dowry in an arranged marriage. Step five, the marriage contract has to be accepted and a cup of wine was shared to seal the marriage covenant. Mm-hmm. That's a cliffhanger, Jeff. I All think right. that's where we're going to take a pause. We'll come back and finish this uh, after a short break. We are talking to Jeff Redorn, and we're in our series called Who Is This Jesus? And we're talking about the marriage tradition in the first century. We're going to come back with more of that in just a minute.
the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. All right, I'm back with Jeff Redorn. We're studying uh, future events in the life of Jesus. Who is this Jesus? That's our series. And we're right now discussing, uh, right before we went to break, all the various steps in the in the the marriage of a young couple in in the first century. And we're up to step five. Should we review quickly the the first four, or is that too much work? Uh, let's just continue. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> so we're on step five. It's actually called the ketuba, ketuba, and it's the marriage contract. And it's accepted once it's accepted by the bride, which was the last step we were talking about right before the break. That the this still this offer of of marriage still needs to be accepted by the bride, even though the bride is chosen by the groom's father. And there would be a cup of wine that was shared to seal the marriage covenant. Oh, a cup of wine Hmm. shared to seal the marriage covenant. Now, do we have a cup of wine where Jesus talks about that he's making a new covenant? Mm -hmm. And we absolutely do. At the Last Supper, it says, in the same way, After the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So in the same way that the marriage tradition had a cup of wine, so too Jesus used that imagery, this cup of wine, to seal the new covenant with his bride. Hmm. Step six, the gift. The gift was then given to a bride, often a coin or something else in value, in fact, sometimes it would be multiple coins that were sewn together and the woman would wear these coins, kind of like an engagement ring. Do you remember the woman in the parable that lost the coin and she searched for yeah. it? It was probably one of these coins that she lost, which is why it was so valuable to mm-hmm. her because it's kind of like losing a stone out of your engagement ring. And what what future bride wouldn't search and search for that? In the same way... So the gift was given to the bride who was going to be the bride-to-be. In the same way, we, as the bride of Christ, has been given a gift. And that gift is the Holy Spirit. How much more will will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Luke 11, 13. So this gift of the Holy Spirit has been given to us. It's been set upon us as a seal that, that this future salvation or wedding, if you will, is going to happen. In fact, Ephesians 1 says that we've received the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our future. Step seven is once the marriage covenant was sealed, the groom would leave to go and prepare a wedding chamber either in his father's home or next to his father's home. That's exactly what Jesus said. I am going to prepare a place for you. Now, we don't know exactly what this place is that Jesus is preparing for us, but we do have the scene at the back of the book of Revelation where there's this new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. It has foundation stones as precious gems. It has pearly gates. The 12 gates of the cities were each pearls. The streets are made of 
gold. I mean, this city, this place is amazing. He's had 2,000 years to make this place. He made the whole Garden of Eden in seven days. He's had 2,000 years to prepare this place. And when he makes all things new in our eternal state, it says, and he will make all things new. And then this new city comes down on this new earth. And it's going to be very, very special. Step eight, the mikvah. What was this? It would include an immersion in water, a baptism, if you will, as part of the ritual of purification prior to the wedding. So the engaged woman would be ceremonially cleansed. Now, yeah, I think in some way this is our water baptism. Mm -hmm. We We are to believe, be saved, and then do a water baptism in order to show that we've had what is called in Scripture the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But I think this is more descriptive of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is receiving the Holy Spirit, because that is the, the, the cleansing that we have received. We have been forgiven completely. We have been washed clean and cleansed, and now the Spirit has baptized us, and we have the Holy Spirit. So I think that is probably more specifically this immersion or cleansing uh, at, that's represented in this step, step number is that eight. A, is that out of Ephesians 4, chapter, uh, verse 5? One that, Lord, one faith, one baptism? Yes, one yeah. baptism, exactly. Okay. Um, step nine, the, the bride was to be ready. The bride is supposed to be ready for the groom's return. She is now consented. She's cleansed. She's prepared herself. She's been set apart, by the way, consecrated, Unto the bridegroom. We, by the way, have been set apart unto Christ. We've been made holy. That's what that word holy means. We've been set apart. Colossians 1.22 that says, says we have now been made holy in his sight. We've been set apart for God for a very special purpose. And we are supposed to be ready and waiting for our groom's return, the Lord's return. And Jeff, do you know how long the uh, bridegroom would spend preparing this place, whether it's an addition to his father's house or, I mean, he's just not going and, and picking up some magazines and sweeping the, the floor. He's preparing something and, and, and the amount of time he spends is an undetermined amount of time, isn't it? It is. So that, you know, it's probably a do-it-yourself kind of project. Right? So he had to <laughs> yeah. work on his own. So, so if we were on, in charge. Yeah. <laughs> if I was in charge, I would still, I'd still be working on it. But uh, I suppose, uh, you know, depending on how handy he is or how, how much resources the family sure. had. But the point that you made is absolutely true. The bride didn't know how long right. it was going to take. Okay. Because then step 10, his return at an unannounced time. When the bride didn't know when it was going to happen, the groom would return, and it was typically at night, and it was usually announced with the sound of a trumpet, a shofar. Ooh. Ooh. Have we heard that before? Somewhere I realized that we've heard about that before. That's right. And so when Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back, the tradition would be at night, the Trump would sound, and there'd be this great procession of people to come and get the bride and bring them back, bring her back to his father's house. And what we're going to see in just a second here, at the rapture of the church, guess what the sound is? It's a trumpet, Mm -hmm. just like this step in the Galilean wedding. So that is very similar 
to the biblical description of the rapture of the church. So we're going to look at just two passages on the rapture. There's many passages that describe this event, but two main ones. The first is from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, which say this, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. Oh, how about that? There's the trumpet. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and after that we who are still alive and and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. So that's one of the main core rapture passages that describe this event. Theologically, if you're going to come to some conclusions, you have to deal with 1 Thessalonians 4, which says there is a time in which the church is going to be caught up into the air mm-hmm. and meet the Lord in the air. That's not the second coming, as we talked about earlier. We're coming down from heaven to earth. In this event, we're going up to meet him in the air. The first thing I want to point out about this passage is the term rapture. Now, some will argue that the rapture word is not even in the Bible, and they are correct. The term rapture is not in the Bible. But the term, the Greek term for being caught up is in the Bible, and that Greek word is harpazo. Wait a minute, that doesn't sound like the rapture either. Well, that's because when we first started studying, modern theologians studied in the language of Latin, not the Greek. And the Latin word for caught up is rapturo. And that is where theologians named this event called the rapture, and it stuck. So you can call it the rapture. You can call it the rapturo. You can call it the harpazo. You could call it the English name, which is caught up, the great catching up. It really doesn't matter what you call it. There is an event in which the church is going to be caught up to heaven. That, we've decided, is called the rapture. All right. Jeff, is there also another rapture that we can talk about briefly, where Jesus is on the Mount of Olives and gets caught up into heaven? We can. So there is actually several different raptures described in Scripture, one of which is what you just mentioned, and that is Jesus, when he is on the Mount of Olives, he is caught up to God. Mm -hmm. And what did that look like, by the way? Jesus was standing on the Mount of Olives talking to his disciples. Yeah. And he went up to heaven bodily, physically, yes. visibly, yes. and everybody saw him, and the men were looking up into the clouds, and then Jesus disappeared in mm-hmm. the clouds. And then this angel comes and, and says, men of Galilee, what are you looking at? And it's, it's, I've always thought that is a very kind of funny question, right? What do you mean, what are we looking at? <laughs> he just went up into the air yeah. and disappeared in the clouds. We've never seen that happen before. Uh, but here's the point. Revelation calls that his rapture, his harpazo, his catching up. Mm -hmm. Same Greek word. And how was he caught up to heaven? Bodily, physically, visibly, in his glorified body, he went up to heaven. That's the same word to describe our rapture. Mm -hmm. And then the, the verse goes on to say, and yet some still didn't believe. And I'm thinking... At what point are you stuck? <laughs> you know, here comes this Christ. Yeah. He says that all of these prophecies pointed to me, and they do. And he said, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, persecuted, put to death on a cross, but I'm going to rise again. He told them that mm-hmm. over and over again. And then he does it, 
and he appears to them in glory after dying on a cross. And then to put like a cherry on top of the whole thing, he bodily ascends up to heaven in which hundreds of people saw it, and yet some still did not believe. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He has made himself known. You know, you have to go back to kind of the the Old Testament times where the, the Israelites saw the sea parted, saw God destroy Pharaoh's army. He led them by the pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. They the, Moses goes up to the mountain. They hear him rumbling and speaking to Moses. And what do they do? They make a golden calf. Oh, isn't that just, there's something about man's heart mm-hmm. in, in those stories, huh? All right, so... When we come back, is it time for a break? Are we ready for a break? So when we come back, we'll describe specifically what is happening to the two groups of people described in 1 Thessalonians 4, the dead in Christ and those who are alive and remain. Seems like a good time to be uh, encouraging you also to uh, be studying the Bible and reading the Bible. And we've got a wonderful uh, series uh, called uh, Studying the Bible, right? So (laughs) through Lent. So you can go right now to myfaithradio.com. And Rosie's laughing up with at that me. name. I don't know. I don't know. Name. Pro- Studying the Bible. Yeah, some smart person. I, I've just never heard you do such a nice segue. That was amazing. <laughs> why? Thank you. Thank you. And you can see I have no notes in front of me. I know. I'm so I know impressed. Is, is That's why I started you. laughing. Yeah. So anyway, myfaithradio.com. You can sign up right there. We'll take a little break and be right back with Jeff. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. As always, this feels like a fast hour in radio, and we have uh, been studying the rapture and end times with Jeff Verdorn. We've got a couple of groups to talk about, Jeff, but I think we're going to start somewhere in Revelation chapter 4, aren't we? Uh, Yes, so when we look at, well, let's look at the two groups first, and then we'll come to Revelation 4. Let's do it that way. And so 1 Thessalonians 4 mentioned two groups of people. They mentioned the dead in Christ, and they rise, and then those who are alive and are left or remain, they are caught up together with them in the clouds. So we have one group of folks who are the dead in Christ. Now, this is something that took me a while to figure out that that so many people think that those who have died in Christ are still in their graves. And therefore, when it says that they rise first, they somehow need to come up out of their graves. And that's the common perception of the resurrection. We've seen illustrations of that. We have. Of bodies coming out of the ground. At the rapture. I, I, if you go and search on it, you can find artwork and yeah. depictions of it. And and that's why, by the way, the church tends to bury people in silk-lined coffins in their favorite dresses and suits and ties and so on to get them ready for the resurrection. Where are the dead in Christ today? Where are they? In the presence of the Lord. They are. Yeah. So Paul clearly says that when a person dies who is in Christ, they are absent from the body. 
and at home with the Lord. Their soul. Their right? soul mm-hmm. is with the Lord in heaven, who is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. So we know. Paul also says that it's better for him to depart and be with the Lord by far. So we, And then he meant it's better for him to actually die and be with the Lord. But he presses on in this world uh, until that day comes. And so we know that the moment a Christian dies, they are with the Lord. They are going to get their resurrected bodies first. That's what the word rise means, receiving your resurrected, glorified body. They don't, there's nothing that needs to happen to the body that's six feet under for, for believers who, are, who have died and are in heaven. They will be clothed in their glorified body up in heaven, and then we will receive our glorified bodies and be caught up together with them in the clouds. So I think, I think the point that many people think is this body that's in the in the grave is going to be joined to the spirit in the air, who, and then all of a sudden you add those two together, and the glorified body gets added to that, and boom, there you have it. Correct. Yeah. And and you know I I often say like Paul's body, what is left of Paul's body from two thousand years ago? The answer is probably nothing. There's yeah. no seg- piece of his body anywhere left anywhere. And so what is God going to do? What Does he need the old body? What about Christians who die in fires or plane crashes or yeah. explosions where there's nothing left, you know, or eaten by a shark or something? You know, there's no part of your body left. And so it's not needed. You will be clothed in glory in heaven because that's where you are, the dead in Christ. Now, I think they get that because Jesus's physical body was changed, right? Mm-hmm. And those who are alive and remain their physical bodies are also going to be changed. So let me read the second most important rapture passage in Scripture, and that's from 1 Corinthians 15, which, by the way, this chapter, this whole chapter is about the glorified body, or most much of it is about the glorified body. But it says this, listen, verse 51, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, meaning we will not all die, but we will all be changed. All believers will be changed. All believers will be glorified. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, oh, there's that trumpet again, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. That's the dead in Christ up in heaven. They will receive their glorified bodies and we who remain will be changed. We will be glorified. So the picture is, is that those who are in heaven will receive their glorified bodies at the trumpet. And at the trumpet, we who are alive and remain, Christians on earth at that moment, our bodies will be changed to glory. How quickly does the passage say that will happen? In the twinkling of an eye. That is what happens in the twinkling of an eye. Our glorification, our being changed from our mortal body to our immortal body, as it's described in 1 Corinthians 15, in a twinkling of an eye. I think theologians have put these two passages together, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, and described the rapture as happening in the twinkling of eye, in an eye, are being caught up. That's not what happens. It's our glorification are being changed. That's what happens in the twinkling of an eye. So let's put this all together. Here's the sequence. The trump sounds. The dead in Christ up in heaven receive their glorified bodies. We who are alive and remain, believers in Christ, our bodies will be changed to glory in an instant, in a twinkling of an eye, right? Because who can be glorified slowly, by the way? 
I mean, that doesn't make any sense, mm-hmm. right? It changed in an instant. And twinkle. I just snapped. Did that go on? Yeah, yeah, okay. Snap. And then, then we are caught up together with them in the clouds in our glorified body. That is the sequence of events for the rapture of the church. So this glorified body, I mentioned 1 Corinthians 15 as the glorification chapter because it describes our new body like this. It's imperishable. It's raised in power. So now we bear the likeness of the man from earth, Adam, the natural body. So too we will bear the likeness of the man from heaven, Jesus, who has already been glorified. For flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, so we are going to be glorified in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven because perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. And so we must be glorified in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And that's what much of 1 Corinthians 15 describes. Mm-hmm. And our, our resurrection, our glorification, our rising to glory happens in the twinkling of an eye. Cool. So now all that's left to picture the rapture is how we go up to heaven. And this is what we were talking about earlier in Acts chapter 1. So remember Elijah? Elijah never died, but he was caught up to heaven. Mm -hmm. Did he just disappear? Or was he caught up to heaven for everyone to see? And the answer is he was caught up for everyone to see in a fiery chariot, right? He Mm -hmm. went up to heaven. Jesus in Acts chapter 1 went up for everybody to see. I think that we've taught in the church that the, the rapture is a disappearance of the body of Christ. They just Uh disappear. Scripture indicates, because of Jesus's rapture and things like Elijah's catching up to heaven, that we will be caught up to heaven bodily, physically, and visibly up to heaven. Just like Jesus rising up in Acts chapter 1, so too at the last trumpet, we will be caught up bodily, physically, and visibly up to heaven. We aren't just going to disappear suddenly. We are going to rise up. We are going to be caught up to heaven, and I think the whole world will see it. And how are they going to explain it? I have no idea. They'll probably say aliens took them all, right? That's (laughs) the only thing I can think of. Yeah. And you don't have to worry about being afraid of heights, do you, at this point? (laughs) Are you afraid of heights? Well, no, I'm just saying you're up in the air as you're getting higher and higher. I mean, you know, some people might be afraid of heights, but I'm not sure at this point you got to worry about that. I don't think we're going to have to worry about okay. that. It's, I have, you know, as I've gotten older, I've gotten a little more afraid of heights. But yeah. I'm not afraid of going up to heaven. No, I'm no, going to be no, in a glorified I. body. Uh, remember, once you're in glory, you, nothing can touch you, right? You yeah, can't die. It's forever. Um, so I know that some people have referred to the rapture as the great disappearance. Even though this book that we were talking about earlier, the Left Behind series, everybody just kind of disappeared. Uh-huh. Oftentimes clothes and jewelry are left behind. Sometimes they're even folded. Uh, I've seen many depictions of the rapture where all these things uh, happen this way. I think we are going to be changed to glory and caught up to heaven just like Jesus was. That's amazing. Yeah, That's the rapture. That yeah. is our blessed hope. And so step 11 of the first century Jewish tradition is the bride and the groom would be in the bridal chamber for seven days. And at the end of seven days, step 12, they would burst forth and there'd be this wedding feast. So at the end of the seven days, the bride and the groom, they'd come out 
and all the invited guests would join them and there'd be this great wedding feast. Well, that's exactly what Scripture describes. When Jesus returns, Revelation 19, and his bride is following him, dressed in fine linen, white and clean, each riding on their own white horses. Mm -hmm. Did you know you get your own white horse? I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I've already named named your horse yet? Yeah, Scooter. Scooter? Yeah. Very good. Mine's Thunder. Nice, nice. Well, yours is probably going to be better than mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah you'll, you'll be right behind me. As okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, but we have then the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God, Revelation 19, 9. So it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. But remember this, are we the ones who, who are invited to this great feast? The is the wedding is the bride invited to her own wedding ceremony? No, guest of honor. England? We are. We are the guest of honor. So never forget, we are not part of the group that in Revelation 19 describes those who are invited. In fact, there's a couple parables where Jesus describes those who are being invited to this wedding feast. We are the bride, and we are the guest. Of honor, isn't mm. that cool? Oh, it's outstanding! What a great, what a great teaching! Thank you for uh, sharing this, and thank you for walking us through what happens in a first-century marriage and how Jesus would have been drawing the illustration right alongside that. So it is; it's a great illustration. And next time, we'll talk about all the events that follow that that very day. Yeah, well, I will look forward to that. That is. Uh, our show for the day. I want to thank uh, Jeff Verdorn for his teaching today, and I want to thank you for tuning in and listening. And if you missed any of this teaching, go to myfaithradio.com. You can check out the podcast. I always encourage you to do that because it's a great way to go back and, and hear something for a second time. That's the way you grow in your faith. So thank you so much for listening today. I hope you have a great rest of the day. Have a great evening. God bless. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.